out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the guitarist. It is Jerry Leonard, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry, and all that other groovy stuff. Anyway, Jerry was um, the guitarist with David Bowie on his Heathen and Reality albums and also toured with him on that particular um, tour, the reality tour, and also appeared again on the album The Next Day that came out quite a few years later. But in the meantime, has worked with people like Suzanne Vega on various albums and tours, as well as Rufus Wainwright, and has been part of uh, his own bands, including um, Spooky Ghost and also Hinterland. Anyway, look, you're going to find out more about this all in the interview. So look, sit back, relax. And um, after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years. Jerry, take it away. Yeah, I, you know, I think, I mean, similar um, age. I'm, I'm, I was born in 62. Right. So when the 70s hit and I was like learning the guitar, you know, Top of the Pops, there was a little, there was a little magazine that used to come out a weekly um, song, pop songs. Like, I don't remember the name of it. Right. Something Easy. but it had the chords and most mostly it had the lyrics that's what we needed we didn't really the chords were whatever you know we, we we had a good enough we were figuring that stuff out yeah um so you know the so the so the thursday evening uh top of the pops was an important show and if slade came on you know what was dave the guitar player going to wear what was what guitar was he using uh ELO split and suddenly Roy Wood was on the scene and we were big, we went with Roy, you know, and, uh, and wizard and stuff. We liked all that stuff. Um, and then, and then, you know, but I was busy. I think I was, I was, I learned guitar from my, from my teacher in school. I was learning piano, but I didn't really like it. I had a hundred year old teacher, you know, it was very strict and it was very old school. And suddenly the guitar was shiny and new and um, my, you know, very kind of debonair um, teacher at the time, fifth class teacher, and he was dating the, the the hot, you know, lady teacher in the other school. And he was just kind of a cool guy. He drew, drove a Fiat 128 and had a, you know, had a Gibson acoustic and brought it in. And anybody want to learn guitar, show up on Monday. And, and so I got my guitar and I was learning and I was very, you know, that whole, he was, he had little bands going on and there was a bunch of us from there. We formed our own band and we, learned Beatles songs and pop songs of stuff. So it was a little bit homegrown. Yes. Um, I, I, it was more like I was having the awakenings, I think, I think in that way. And it was fed by, you know, whatever I could get my hands on. Uh, and it was kind of like, yeah, we can do this. Yeah. Okay. I get it. You know, we're going to do this. And um, that was kind of like... Well, it's, it, it's kind of interesting because obviously I remember Lemmy from Motorhead saying when he was at school, yeah. he saw a kid with a guitar and all these girls went with this guy and he went, right, yeah. I'm going to get a guitar and just walk around school for the next day. And he went, well, it does work. I'd better learn how to play it. So obviously, you know, the, these very primitive emotions and motives can yeah. great things. So did you, yeah. did you have a sort of a bit of a musical household? Did your family kind of enjoy music and play music or sort of have a good record collection and you know, well you know not not really no there wasn't any musicians in our family but we all got sent to piano lessons and I think that was my grandmother 
um, I think we actually got given her piano, upright piano. And so that was, the girls got dancing and, and we got piano lessons or whatever, you know. But my dad, but at the same time, my dad was very supportive, you know, and I took to it pretty quickly. And he would, and I would, they would wheel me out at the Christmas parties and I would play a few songs and stuff. So I had, I had support yes. from my dad. And, and he you, would drive later on. He would drive me to gigs with my gear and stuff. You know, nice. I mean, because I was loaning me money. <laughs> oh, good. That's even better, actually. Because I was listening yeah. to your, some of your solo albums that you've done recently, and there was a there's quite an ambient prog vibe in there. Did did sort of people like Yes and Genesis and and such people sort of come into your consciousness at that stage, or, or did they ever come into your consciousness, or was that just kind of um, a coincidence that some of the? I think the, yeah. I think my my. I, I don't think I'm a prog person, although it might appear that way, uh, I suppose, in some ways, in the way that you approach the guitar as, as an instrument, you try and push its 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 limitations or or push the, the, the edges a little more. But, you know, I was interested in the sonic side of things. Like, it's more like Brian Eno right. and the, Bow, the Bowie stuff, the, the Eno stuff. Um, I was I was interested in those parts of the thing and I was interested in I got involved in a recording studio when I was around 16 I got a job and I was interested in the whole thing of like recording I was interested in a little bit of the technical side as well as the you know even the guitar was a puzzle to me just to work out you know <laughs> I built my own electric out of everyday electronics with my dad you know oh, that's so cool. that's we built it in the back shed so you know, it was just an ongoing project. <laughs> so there was the Prague in the project, you know. Yes, um, ab absolutely. And did sort of when punk came along, sort of 77 time, did that have a kind of impact or was that a bit later yeah. on? Yeah, because that threw a real wrench in the works. Like I was learning guitar, I guess, with the local guy and I would go up and he would, he seemed like he just got out of bed. I'd go up there around three o'clock in the afternoon on my bike and then, he would, he had a record player in his room and a bunch of records and he was pretty good on you know, Les Paul. And um, he would show me like, you know, Bad Company and Free and, you know, he'd give me the record then and I would go home, take it home because I didn't really have records myself, but I would get these classic rock records. So I was learning all that classic rock stuff. Good. And then, and then punk hit and new wave hit. I was like, no more solos, no more guitar solos, <laughs> no bending strings. Yeah. Like all of these things were out, no feedback. You know, none of this wailing stuff was like ding, ding, ding. And but that was cool, too. I mean, we figured out the open string thing and we liked the new bands that were coming out a lot. And so we shaped it. We, we fell right in with the new wave thing that became our bands, whereas we've been playing more melodic stuff and maybe starting to get into rock and blues. Yes. And R &B. And that was a good, you know, it was a good place to learn. Suddenly then it was like straightening out everything and the big snare sound and the guitars were much more riff based and little open string chimey things. And I, I bought a, I got my hands on a Memory Man Echo and, um, you know, and then I was learning classical guitar on the side as well. So that, that, that was a shift into the kind of study properly, you know, on the guitar. Yes, so, well, absolutely. That, that's probably, um, it probably helps in later life when you're sort of, yeah, yeah. Different musicians who, who I think it shaped, of... and it shaped me as a guitar player 
people say, oh, you sound different. And I'm like, well, there's a few, there's a few reasons, you know, <laughs> few reasons. <laughs> I think everybody has a certain, you know, there's influences, aren't there, that people sort of like from people like Johnny Marr, who mentions these people, you know, like, I think he liked Pentangle and Rory Gallagher and people like that. Yeah. So yeah. you can go, oh, yeah, and obviously everyone likes Keith Richards and, and yeah. you know, and, and I did an interview with Earl Slick and he was like, oh, yeah, Keith was my man, you know, and you think, okay, that's... Yeah. That kind of all makes sense. I guess every those kind of things do do shape people. But I suppose if you're going to have a career in music, you then need to to move it slightly. Otherwise, you get a bit limited. But then there was all these guitarists who play with David Bowie, and they're all sort of from the rockabilly phase as well. And and people like Eddie Cochran and the Stray Cats. So yeah, it mm. is interesting who who gets you know who gets to sort of um, yeah I mean get embedded in someone's kind of habits yeah i think i you know i started listening to a lot of the the uh you know well the bands at the time you know so you know was echoing the bunny man or talking heads from america whatever um but you know there's a guy that came up recently with john mcgill the guitar player scottish guitar player who played with susie and the banshees yes magazine and stuff and he was he was a guy i like i was like who's that guy who's playing the guitar on this stuff and found out it was him and i found out recently that Johnny Marr was influenced by him as well. It's interesting. It um, is. Yes. He he seems to be a name that crops up a lot, doesn't he? As a, yeah. Yes, everyone. I think musicians kind of understand that more than people like myself, who's a kind of punter and you think, yeah, that just sounds great. But, you know, I think other musicians yeah. go, my God. How well, do you it, was think? A, it was a bit of a stylistic, it was a stylistically different way of playing the guitar. And it was, it was, it was, it was still song based and it was very, um, you know, it was an interesting way. It was a challenge. He was a good player. So his stuff wasn't easy, you know. And um, whereas you had guys who were good, like um, Mark Knopfler and Dire Straits or whatever. But that was a that was a thing. You know, that was a different. That was kind of like somehow a little bit of a crossover almost into the yes. new wave. Thing. So when people like the came along or Peter Buck from from R.E.M. and they had another style, yeah. did that also make you go, oh, right, I better go and go away and sort of have a little fiddle around and see see how they No, I think I think really at that at that point for me I was on my own track. I was like I'm going to be Jerry Leonard, you know. <laughs> and so the thing was if you had a band you 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 wanted to sound different than the other guys. And then, you know, as you two were coming up because we were not contemporaries, we were a little younger, but we were still on the same scene early on and of course they started to really take off and stuff, but then you couldn't play a harmonic like I was playing harmonics but then suddenly if you did that you were like the edge so you didn't do that anymore so you had to find your own thing a little bit that must be you know? very tricky actually because it's kind yeah, of it is interesting because you had that punk period and then there was a post-punk period with people like you know Gang of Four and Peel and Magazine and um yes um yes yeah. all those bands like that but then sort of 83 the Smiths come along so indie pop gets a real kind of like band and an identity for five years indie pop you know for me anyway becomes such a sort of major part of my life until about 87 which everything seems to then change because you get these kind of waves in in sort of music when you're especially younger you know the, the 16 to 18 year olds want to hear their sound and it's like okay this is it and then the smiths break up and then 
yeah, ecstasy comes along and then there's this kind of new sound that people want and they want sort of the yeah. dance dance world and there's other, you know, people from 4AD records like the Pixies and Throne Muses and then you've got the Seattle scene coming around in 89. So how mm. were you navigating the 80s? Because so much came on. And I've just mentioned yeah. that kind of scene. There was the Trevor Horn production sound of, you know, yeah. Frankie and ABC and Frankie and, and Dire Straits, yeah. as you mentioned, and Spandau Ballet and Duran Duran. So what was your kind of 80s period like? Yeah, so, you know, like late 80s, I I formed a band with another guy and we got signed. We eventually got signed to Island Records around 89. So that started for me around 86, 87. Is this Hinterland? Hinterland, yeah. Right. And, um, you know, we were listening to Prefab Sprout. We were listening to the Waterboys, you know. What about Micro uh, Disney? Did they come into your life? Not so much the Irish bands. We were kind of looking further, you know, um, so I, I was aware of them, but they were more, I think they were, they were from a different, like we were going for more of a sound. It was like a soundscape kind of thing. We were, that was our thing. So we were still doing that. It might've been like, our time might've been like 84, 85, but it was 87, 89. We were still going after that thing. You know, we wanted to like this bigger, more cinematic kind of, you know, pop. It's pop songs, but they still have like a, um, there's a meaning to it. There's a depth to it. And, um, you know, it, it felt like, you know, maybe it would have a sound that would be us, that we could express ourselves with that, you know? Yes. So does that make sense? You know what I mean? So even though things were shifting a little into the dance thing and the, and the grunge thing, we were still hanging on to like, we still had this idea that we believed in, you know? Um, well, I, don't, I must admit, you know, Prefab Sprout, the album Queen, uh, Steve McQueen was just a huge yeah. kind of soundtrack for a year. And, and, there were, yeah. and there were those bands that came along. There was Paul Simon's Graceland that happened. There was, yeah. this, you know, various albums. It's also like the, the, their record. That, those records had just come out. We loved those. I'm remembering now. And the Prefab Sprout. But um, what was the other thing I was going to say? Um, yeah, it's not coming to me. There was some other some other bands that were like, you know, we were very kind of infatuated with their their records and their style, you know. Yes, well, I suppose with each of those periods, there's always a, a, a producer that everyone seems to want to, you know, get, and there's the sort of sound that people also kind of want to get as well. And some it is interesting because yeah. some some artists who were sort of in their zeitgeist moment sound really good and there's other artists who who were slightly struggling who had been say big in the 70s when in the 80s there apart from paul simon who obviously graceland was a great album but a lot of the mm. other people were chasing a sound that sort of when obviously they they probably look back and think yeah the 80s wasn't my decade really was it I, yeah you know discover the 90s and sort of start to get their sort of creative moves back again so yeah it is kind of interesting so then as the 90s so you with hinterland how long did that last it was you know it was about a four-year thing in the end we made one record a couple of videos a couple of singles almost made another record you know the demo process kind of you know because we weren't we weren't really ready for the kind of like well we're moving on and we're like what do you mean we're moving on we haven't done anything yet so <laughs> we're moving on and um you know that was hard for us we didn't have uh looking back i, I realized how naive we were but we were like wait this is a great record and it just needs a chance and you know all that yes i still love I, I still like the record which is yeah. good so that's cool i like most of it you know which is yeah. which is fantastic it's kind of hard to get hold of though actually isn't it it's on youtube and yeah 
it's a real shame. I mean, I would say that like what it's sitting on a shelf in Island Records bunker somewhere. Um, <laughs> we, you know, because we we they paid. You know, they gave us money and they had lawyers and all that kind of thing. So yeah, sure, I get it. They own it, but at the same time, they don't want it. They they pretty they didn't really want it after three years. They didn't want it. Why can't why why we want it? You know, it would be a nice thing to have. I could give it to my friends. You know, whatever. It yes, absolutely. Um, and ar- archiving. I realize that everybody likes archiving now, so it's it's a good thing to yeah. do. So then you you moved to New York in the nineties. This is quite a major yeah. moment, I guess. I mean, what was the kind yeah. of? Did you just feel like this is it? I need to have a bit of a midlife moment, a change. Well. Yeah, I mean, I I didn't I didn't think of it so much as being at the middle of my life or anything like that. I was just kind of like where I was, but I knew that the cycle had ended with a band. So I didn't I'd done the cycle, and I'd done this many times, and it was the four year cycle. You know, you meet the guy, you're kind of like, yeah, we're talking about it. Well, let's try a few songs. You figure out your your writing. You start, you know, do good demos. We got the deal. We went through the whole mill, and then we were on the other side of it. And I was like, I can't. You know, either I do that again, or um, I could go to New York. And I'd been to New York, courtesy of Island Records. Um, right. They brought us over a few times to do to do stuff. And I and I loved the city. It seemed when I went there, it seemed so friendly and full of possibility. And I loved the energy of it, and the kind of like the whirring of it of the whole thing. And then and then I had I had a good friend there. Um, Kevin Killen, the record producer, uh, engineer. Kevin and I worked together when he was, we were seven, we were in our teens. I was in 17, he was maybe 19. We worked in the 24 track studio together. We were tape ups yes. and we would trade shifts and, and all that kind of stuff. And then he went off and did his recording career and ended up mixing Peter Gabriel's Soul record and doing Kate Bush and U2 and, you know, working with all these, with these giants. Yes. And he came and mixed the Hinterland record for us. We needed somebody to mix it. And um, his name was mentioned. I was like, I know, he's great. Let's get him. And he came. So we reconnected. He got me on, on a project out of America. And then there was a little job for me there, really, because we got along. They were like, yeah, if you want to come to New York, we, we're doing some gigs. So there's a few little carrots. And it seemed like, yeah, I'll, I'll just go. I mean, looking back, I was like, really? You did that? I'm based on you 200 bucks on a guitar and you promise of a gig you went to New York <laughs> yeah and that's what I did that's know? very good so as, as the 90s progressed on did you just suddenly become you know a guitarist that was there for people to um say look we really need a guitar solo here we need a guitarist you know how yeah. did that how did your 90s progress well you know it was a, it was I, so it was mid 90s when I moved here and um you know, it was it was an okay start, and then I had a real rocky period where I realized I was, you know, one of a thousand, ten thousand guitar players. You know, um, and then I started to make a few connections, and I, I had a few wake up calls. I I got an audition with the Blue Nile. That's another band that we loved. Was the Blue oh, Nile? Yes, the Blue Nile. Tinseltown in the rain and all that, and then they came out with um, was either Hats or the one after that, and. Um, they were in New York and the normal guy that couldn't do the that plays with them couldn't do it. And they were so they were looking for a replacement guitar player. And I knew some of the people around that scene because uh, I'd worked with one guy and he'd recommended me to his friend. So I met him. Anyway, I got the audition. I got to go an audition 
and I almost got it, but I didn't get it. Some other guy got it. And that was a huge wake up call to me. I was like, cause I thought, well, you know, I love the music and I'm going to be passionate about this. And I'm going, you know, I'm going to get it because I'm such a fan, you know, yes. and I want to be there and the can do guy. And that wasn't enough. I didn't get, it. I didn't have the skill set. So I was like, Oh shit, it's really tough here. And so I got another audition uh, six months later for Cindy Lauper's band. And I was like, I need this gig. I'm going to, so I, I didn't go in there half prepared. <laughs> I went in there fully prepared. I played the skip and the solo and everything. I, you know, I was ready to go. And I, and I got the gig right there. And then I was walking out and she's like, come back. And basically, you know, long story short, it was like, I started. And that, that put me on the scene. So suddenly I got an audition and, and then I met somebody else and started working with other guys. And one thing led to another. So that was, that was like getting a foot on the wrong, uh, a wrong of the ladder. And um, <laughs> yes, absolutely. I'm starting to climb up. And then, you know, I, and I, but I was also like, I had my own, I was still had my own thing from the hinterland days. I got to refine that a little more. Like I, I, I was a little more defined as a player. And so New York taught me to be a lot more defined as a player and to be a lot more direct and, and how to do it on the spot and be more instantaneous about it, not just talk about it, but actually, show people what, a, what, a, what my idea was. So, you know, I got on the scene in that way and that was nice. I, I, got, I started to get hired for, oh, get that guy, you know, get, he's the color guy or he's the, he's the Brit rock guy or whatever. Yes. You know. <laughs> I know. Did you come across when you were working with Cindy Lauper, did you come across a producer called Mark Saunders at all in that time? Or, cause I'd, I'd, I'd sort of- His name sounds familiar. He did, His name sounds familiar. He did Tricky and various other people, and he was quite a go-to person during that period. Yeah. And then he yeah. did a he worked with Cindy, and um, he just he said it was quite it was quite interesting. <laughs> yeah, she's a, she's a character. I love her, and she's incredible. You know, she's an incredible singer. Yeah, you know, and because she does that thing with her voice, you know, sometimes you know it could be just oh, it's just a pop voice. But I I've heard her sing, and she can she can hang with best of them uh, powerhouse and you know she's she's on fire too so i've seen her roast people i never got that too much like maybe once or twice in rehearsals but i didn't get that thing i got along with her yes so, and um, uh, let's face it i mean she did there was you know pop perfection in the especially in the 80s with true colors and um yes yeah. Time after time, which was fantastic. Yeah, we, we would do those songs. I mean, yeah, classic songs. We did. Amazing. We, I got to do some great uh, French TV with her and the tour of Japan. And, yes, um, that I saw been... her in action. We played the Budokan. You know, I mean, I saw her in action, and she's she's out there. She's on fire. She's out in the audience. You know, she's running around uh, the, the the stalls. You know, uh, poor Japanese people didn't know what to make of her. You know, she was like she got all. <laughs> on New York yes. on them. So. She probably, she, she broke down the sort of, was it the third, the barrier? I don't know what they call it in acting where you sort of, the, the third wall or something. Or opened oh my up God, people. she smashed the hell out of that. Yeah. <laughs> so then you, you know, because obviously in the 80s, we had several sort of key singer-songwriters at that time, didn't we? We had Tracy Chapman, Michelle Schott, Sinead O'Connor. But mm. before all that, we had, we had Suzanne Vega, who you sort of worked with in the sort mm. of early 2001. How did that kind of come about and and yeah. how did you manage to get that gig yeah you know it was it was a similar path i 
I started to work, you know, I worked with Cindy and then I worked with uh, Duncan Sheik, who was an American artist who was having success with a single at the time. Um, like I would work, so I, for instance, I would work with Duncan. And so then, you know, I met Mark Platty, uh, who we'll talk about, I'm sure, soon. Um, he's a producer and we got along. And But I also met Rupert Hine and we got along. And then Rupert got the gig to produce Suzanne's next record, which was Songs in Red and Grey that she was making at the time. Yeah. So he called me up and he said, uh, do you want to, you know, want to come down? I'm doing two songs with Suzanne as a tryout. Love you to come and play. I was like, absolutely. I'm a huge fan, which I was when we were writing Hinterland. You know, the, the Solitude Standing cassette was there. We would play it often, you know. So yes. I was a big fan. And so I went down and... Um, I played on the two songs and that he got the gig as a producer and I got the gig as guitar player for the record. And we did that. And then um, she started promoting the record and she had a little accident where she hurt her arm. And so she couldn't play. And so they need, so suddenly like, can you come and play? So I had to learn her parts, uh, which is, you know, I love that kind of forensic guitar playing. And so I figured out her stuff and then um, she was happy with that. And then we, you know, I started playing gigs with her, with her band and stuff. Um, yes, and I, it's it's one fun. She's always had amazing bands, hasn't she? She's, yeah. I mean, you know, from the bass player to the drummer to the keyboard player, the guitarist. I mean, yeah. I've, I've noticed that she's always really sort of, and obviously she's had Mitchell Prune as well. So I, yeah. it's just always kind of quality. Yeah, really her. good New York crew. And and so, yeah, Mike Fisegli was the bass player at the time, still plays with her. I still, I saw Suzanne today. I had coffee with her. I mean, we're doing, we just did five shows together <laughs> post-pandemic. Yes. And um, still, still working with her. And, you know, she still sounds amazing and still writing and doing stuff so it's it's nice you know um because on because you because I, I mean it's kind of interesting because i haven't done this show for quite a long time and an awful lot of interviews most bands have a you know or artists have this five-year narrative you know they have that one year the honeymoon period yeah. you know and i suppose with the indie bands that i've often interviewed they've been sort of mostly quite young so they're unemployed and they sort of get a single together john peel plays it they get a john peel session everything's going well you know they mm-hmm. get their band they go around the country you know and it's all very exciting and that first album is fun the second album a bit difficult you know things are starting to get harder and yeah. you know dynamics and there's also an incredible lack of money and then by the third album most people have just about had it and that, the other thing with a lot of the english British bands I've interviewed, they often sort of reason for breaking up. And one of them is, is they, they often say, and we toured America and then we came back and broke up. And it always seems to just destroy bands going around America. I don't think young people <laughs> going around America is good for their health, it's, really. It's a big place. It's, it's a big place and it's hard to feel like you're making a dent, you know, when you go nationwide, you know. So I can understand that. Yes. You, know, you come back exhausted and you feel like, did we do anything? And yes, you did, but it was a scratch, you know, you just scratched it. So when you when you did that follow-up with Suzanne, which was the, the Beauty and the Crime album, which yeah. was kind of on another record label and another, another amazing lineup of people, the songs, I mean, there's, there's, she's really 
I mean, like with any artist, I mean, they must have this like, wow, because her first couple of albums, you know, were just gold. I mean, she headlined Glastonbury in 89 on the Friday night, which is like, wow, that's incredible. And there was like, you know, fantastic sales. And then suddenly the record label drops you and then you have to sort of work out what to do next. What's yeah. What was the atmosphere like when you went to do, you know, Beauty and Crime? Because obviously this is on, um, was it Blue Note Records, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, so yeah, we did the songs in Love, Red and Grey, and then we went to Beauty and Crime. It was the first record on Blue Note, um, which I almost produced, you know. Uh, I, I had my name in the hat for that. Um, that got complicated. Um, but I didn't, but I was like, sure, I'll play that, play guitar on it. And, um, yes, because you know, <clears throat> it was, I mean, it was a good collection of songs. I mean, I think with Suzanne, she's, she's a, What's interesting about Suzanne as, a, as an artist is that she's a she's a writer, she's a words person, um, and obviously beautiful and melody and and, and singer and, and everything. But she is very the songs always have this kind of um, you know there's a there's a there's a there's a real writer quality to it or something like that. And in terms of the so she approaches the writing like that. And the, the Beauty and Crime record was kind of like a New York scenes record you know i think yes. um because it's interesting because there's a fun there's there's some amazing songs there's ludlow ludlow street, ludlow street which is, yeah which is quite an autobiographical number about this kind of scene that she was part of and connected to her brother but it opens with the about the graffiti artists isn't it zephyr and yeah. i and Definitely. it has a, and when i was listening to that the other day i was thinking Oh, this really reminds me of Lou Reed's Vicious a little bit. They had a similar vibe. When you were putting that record together, were you were you kind of slightly collaborating, kind of her music, yeah, and, well, and your input as well? At that point, because I'd been playing with Suzanne for a bit, and I and I kind of like I'd helped her put together a few other things, um, and actually I'd helped her put together the showcase for that record. Well, we all had the Mike and Doug and I, we really took those demos and kind of like really flashed them out because we wanted, we wanted the gig to go well. And that's our job as musicians, but also um, we wanted her to get the deal, you know, with Blue Note. Yes. And, um, you know, in, in a weird twist of fate in, you know, the, the cruelness of the, the music business, I ended up getting, still playing guitar on it, but the drummer and bass player, they, they were replaced by other really great guys but nonetheless it was it was a <laughs> sad day for them but we um we did flesh out the songs a lot um and um i remember like like bringing my kind of like i remember being in the room making the record and kind of going what if we did this you know what we need a riff here what if we did this We're like yeah okay let's do that i'm like and can you can we do that and then can we change it i was always like firing off like little you know like i would do in my band and we kind of like this bridge is messed up why is it why why can we get out of here better and so we change it and make it better so we did all that kind of stuff um and it was guitar bass and drums we were tracking with as well so you know, I think in in the absence of of anything else, I probably ended up playing a little more guitar than maybe I should have. But that was that was what was that being asked at the time. You know. Yes. Was there was there a sense of urgency with that record? Because obviously this is a new label after A and M that said, you know, well, actually that's going to be it yeah. at the moment. I just wondered if it was like, right, you know, this is where we have to sort of dig in and make sure this is. Well, I think. Sharp. I think. Yeah, I think it was. I think it was a situation where. Um, Everybody was excited, 
you know, Suzanne was excited and Blue Nub were excited. And so they were like, let's make the re- let's just make the record now. And and so there was an urgency because and there was also a scrambling <laughs> because we're like, really, we're making the record. But we, you know, we need to figure these things out. So there was a lot of it just kind of <laughs> happened in the studio. No, I still think it's a, you know, I mean, there are several songs on there, you know, like I said, Zephyr, which I think has just got a great vibe. Yeah. And I do love Ludlow Street because it sort of appeals to my romantic, melancholic kind of emotional state, really. Nice string arrangement on that one as well. You know, it's beautiful. It's absolutely. Yes, your, your cello is often, it's often there. Because just, just briefly, because just before that uh, time, I, I went to see Avril Lavigne. I loved her first album. I went to see her yeah. at Brixton Academy. I'm a bit of a pop fan at times. So um, yeah. you, you played on that famous debut album, didn't you? I did, yeah. Yeah, I ended up on it. I mean, I did, so full disclosure, I didn't meet Avril. You know, it wasn't like, hey, Avril, how about this? <laughs> I worked with a producer who was a, a writer producer and who ended up having a couple of songs on there. And the way that business works is, you know, the, produ- the those guys, they, you know, they do the demos, but they do the demos with the artist in mind. And, and, and that often becomes the track that the artist ends up singing on. So I was on, I was on those sessions. Yeah. One of those guys who was like, get the, get the, get the Brit rock guy, you know, whatever. <laughs> So, so on that album, which has kind of so many classics, did you play on most of them or virtually all of them or just I, a couple? I, no, I think just a couple. I think, and, and you know, I, I don't even, I don't even know which ones? what they are. No. I need, I, I should be a little better about it, but um, <laughs> I, I should get the gold record, right? And hang it on my wall. But I, I, yes. I don't, I don't I think- do that. No, no that's fair enough, actually. But then, I mean, because it's kind of interesting, because over the years, and I sort of mentioned my first single, my first love, was David Bowie. And so, you know, I've, I've got an obsession with him. And so I've interviewed an awful lot of people who have played with him and, and worked with him and stuff like that. How did you sort of find yourself suddenly becoming part of the, the, the David Bowie kind of world? Because at that stage, and, and to be honest, when I was talking about artists who, you know, they're great in one decade, and sometimes they're don't always quite get it in the next decade and David's 80s work I mean Let's Dance was great but then um, Never Let Me Down and the other one God I can't remember Mm. weren't the greatest two Tonight What's that? Tonight Tonight right Tonight, never let me down. Yeah, I mean, luckily, Tim Machine. I still quite like Tim Machine. Um, they weren't, they weren't brilliant. I mean, some of the production. But then the same with people like, you know, I remember Rod Stewart talking about his career, and he said, "Oh, can we just skip the '80s?" And I thought he was going to be talking about his personal life, but it wasn't. It was about his musical kind of input in the '80s or output in the '80s. So, yeah. and it's kind of interesting when you listen to Robert Plant's kind of solo stuff. I mean, it was all right, but it does sound a bit like, "God, that's a bit eighties." It's a shame, you know, you couldn't re-record some of the songs. So, so it's kind of interesting how decades change people. And obviously, the nineties interesting, but not an amazing, you know, some kind of okay albums from David. But then you come along and things start to improve, which is a great coincidence, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, yeah. I brought my magic touch. You brought your magic touch to to this experience. Because one of the albums, which is always a bit of a mystery, is Toy, isn't it? Because mm. you, you play on Toy, don't you? But it never gets brought out. But he does a, he does a song on there, which he re-records called In the Heat of the Morning. Was that one that you'd worked on? You know, uh, so, it, well, you're right in saying Toy was, was my entry point into David's world. Because um, Mark Platty 
who I mentioned earlier, great uh, bass player, but all would but engineer producer, and he was Mar- he he'd done the Earthling record with with David. Yes. And then uh, he did. He was doing the toy. He did the Glastonbury show as his band leader, MD. And then he was doing the toy record, and he knew my playing. He was doing a track. I don't think I played on that track. Right. Uh, they played. I think I played on a couple, and one of them was "Slip Away" or "Uncle Floyd" or something that that made it to Heathen. Um, Shadow Man, I think, is another song. Yes. And. Um, there's another one, I, I, but I don't think it's that one. Um, so, you know, I was working, you know, at whatever. I, I was actually producing a little record, and I was in the little room down the down the hall from in Looking Glass in B room, and David was up in the A room, and um, Mark was was there when I came down with a CDR and said, "Here's a Bowie track. I'd love you to put do your guitar thing on here," and and you know. Can you do that? I was like, Are you kidding me? Absolutely. And so I brought it home and plugged it into my little Mac at home. I did, you know, super basic rig. And then I, I did some guitars that night and I brought it in and gave it back to Mark and he played it for David. David loved it. And that was, that was that. That was, then I was kind of like, oh, let's try that guy again. You know, so. <laughs> so, um, he, so Heathen, so you played on Heathen property. Much well, I, so yeah, so I did the toy. I did about three or four sessions with him on toy, and then I heard, "Oh, it's been scrapped," and I was like, "What?" And I do, <laughs> and then <laughs> he's he's up in all areas, he's making another, and he was with you know David Torn and Tony Levin, and and um, and then they came back down the mountain, and then he did some overdubs. So I got to go in and play on the on the overdubs. He called me in in to play on a bunch of stuff on Heathen. Um, and then he was going to play live. He was going to, he did the Meltdown Festival, right? So, yeah. um, he, and that was kind of like to launch Heathen. We did, um, Low and, and, um, and Heathen back to back, two albums start to finish kind of, that was his idea for the show, which was a great, you know, beautiful idea. And then they needed a guy to play all that guitar, all that out of the box guitar. Um, so that's what Mark, what Mark tells me is, is, um, is like, David's like, um, can Jerry rock? <laughs> uh, which sounds like David and it sounds like a fair question. And then, um, Mark said, well, he's playing on Tuesday down in living room. So I used to do my solo thing called Spooky Ghost, um, in a little cafe. And it was, it was one of those clubs where you had the eight to nine o'clock slot. Somebody was playing from seven to eight, eight to nine, nine to 10, 10 to 11, whatever. It was very New York, throw and go, we used to call them, because you literally, you'd get to stage at eight o'clock and you'd bring in your stuff, you'd throw it down, right? Plug it in and you play. And then right. 10 to nine, you'd finish and you'd pick up all your stuff and shuffle. And you'd shuffle out of there because it was a little cafe, you know, we barely had a stage. And we'd run some cartoons in the background, some Betty Boop cartoons. And um, my bass player friend had all that stuff going on. So David came down to a show. I was like, David's coming to your show. Mark called me. I was like, oh. <laughs> yes, that's interesting. So, is it a bit like yeah. a showcase? I mean, I know that Woody, um, Woody Allen, he he has a bit of a showcase, doesn't he? He used to play on a Monday or Tuesday night doing his yeah. jazz. Is this a similar gig that you just go? Oh, mean, by the way, well, no, it it wouldn't be a show. I wouldn't call it a showcase. It's more like 
a chance for me to play the way that I want to play. Uh, like, so it's a little bit experimental and it, and I keep it loose and I, I kind of try and rely, rely a little on my wits um, and, you know, and I can do my kind of ambient looping thing and, you know, put me on top of me and, you yes. know, it's, you know, but hopefully, you know, it, it turns into something. It's really fun to do it live. It's kind of like balancing plates and keeping everything running and, um, it gets exciting, you know, it gets exciting at the audience response to it. So it's like 50 people and I would do it whenever I could. I would do it like once a month or something like that. But it wasn't like, come, come down, you know, to Woody Allen's, you know, Carlisle show, or whatever. It was much more um, gorilla. Yes, you know? absolutely. I mean, but David, but he, David came to the show and he, he, he loved it. I, I, apparently he was like heckling me during it and he was like, barely had a chair you know everybody's jammed in and it's loud and it's anything can happen things go crackle and pop and you just go with it and you know it's it's a lot of fun yes know? and that's as a sort of a, a, a not just an artist but and a musician but also as a as a person dealing with with so much going on in life suddenly from thinking god not much is happening to oh i've got you know this person over here like with suzanne vega and then oh david bowie is suddenly quite interested how do you kind of emotionally start to digest and cope with that kind of moment think god i can't believe it but i'm now on the album and suddenly there's another album and i want yeah. to be, you know he wants me on that and a tour which by the way it's going to be, I'm going to be away. I better find my passport. How do you, you know, just interested, how do you sort of then have to cope with those kind of quick changes? Well, I think there's, you know, there is, there's definitely the, there's moments and you still have moments where you go like, that happened. You know, I was just speaking to David Bowie on the phone or, you know, that's David Bowie and he's sitting beside me, you know. But when you're with David or Suzanne or whatever, they don't want, they don't want a person who's freaked out or, or fan or being sycophant or whatever, you know, they want it to be real. You know, yes. they want to have a real, they want to be themselves. They want to be comfortable. They want you to be comfortable and be yourself, you know, so it quickly changes for me. I, I you know, and it just becomes familiar, you know, we'll have a laugh and we'll get some work done and we'll talk about what's important and we'll argue about what, you think is important <laughs> and, um, and uh, you know so uh, and David's very was very very charming and disarming in that way so um, and then you'd leave you know you'd have you'd have little moments but um, then it becomes more like is he going to call me again <laughs> yes know? and was that it like was that it kind of thing yeah um, but I mean it's kind of it is kind of interesting because obviously it's like I don't know I've spoke to a few people where they would almost like something would happen. It's like everything has to change. It's like, by the way, we've lost the guitarist. Can you fill in? And by the way, could you be on tour for the next eight months or something like that? And it's a bit like, okay, I think I should. I better yeah. just tell my wife not to order so much food next week because I probably well, won't be here. Know, yeah, so you have those moments. I remember being in this hallway and I called Suzanne and I got her and I, she's like, what is it, Jerry? I'm I'm busy or whatever. And I was like, um, well, and we need to talk about the tour. And I was, and she's like, what? And I was like, well, look, um, I'm not going to be able to do your next tour. She's like, what? And I'm like, yeah, I'm sorry, um, uh, but I'm going to find you somebody else. And why can't you do it? Well, I got asked to do this other gig. What is it? It's like, well, it's David Bowie. And she's like, David Bowie. And I'm like, yeah. And she's like, oh. 
that's great. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so she was supportive. And she's like, and then when I finished with David and that can't all calm down, you know, uh, I started working with her again. So, you know, wasn't kind of like, if you leave me, don't ever come knocking on this door again. So, you know, over the years, I tried to do that with the artists that I work with and all my work is, you know, just try and get asked back and keep it, keep it on the straight and narrow, you know, be honest with people or whatever. So, but yeah, so there's a weird situation, right? You're calling Suzanne Baker to tell her you can't go on tour because you've got to go on tour with David Bowie. Yes, you and you, you must have thought, God, I would have done, I could have done both of these, but why did they have to come up? Yeah, this time? I know, it must be true. I mean, when you I've look had, at those I've two... Had, yeah, I've had to choose, that's a, that's a hard choice. And I, that, that might sound sp spoiled because I, I don't feel like I'm spoiled. Well, I, I am spoiled in a way because I've got to work with these great artists, but yes. I've had to... You know, like Rufus Wainwright will want to go on tour and Suzanne will want to go on tour or whatever at the same time. And you, and you have to choose, you know, and it's hard. It's very I, hard. I would imagine it's very hard. Now, just well, just re just remembering those two albums, Heathen and Reality. I mean, they both yeah. seem to sort of have that, God, this is great. Everything's good again and is a nice vibe. Did Was the recording of the, the follow up reality? What was your memory of that? I mean, was it a sort of because it seems to just work very well you know a few people said it didn't have the depth of he uh, heathen but it did sort of have a good spirit that felt like somebody who was just was it was kind of clicking really well at that stage i think david had clicked into gear you know what had happened was that he had for 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 whatever david reasons and he would he would take long breaks he's always taking taking long breaks with things or often and um you know, he came back, he did Glastonbury, he he did Toy and then scrapped it. He quickly made Heathen, like, he just switched, he switched from, okay, well, if we're not doing that, then we're going to do this. And Heathen, um, and then, you know, we played some shows and really we got together to do um, the Meltdown, but we ended up, he's like, well, we booked more shows in, in the States. And Moby, his friend, he was friends with Moby at the time. Moby had one of these Area 2 tours um, where it was a collection of artists. And we did we did a couple of weeks with that. And it was and David was like, yeah, let's go out and play. We did the five boroughs of New York. We did, um, he, wanted, he wanted to do this thing, the five boroughs. And he made a book and a, I don't think there was a recording of it, but we played in Staten Island, Queens, Brooklyn, Bronx, and, and Manhattan. And that was a little mini tour. So we did these really fun things. So he was like, that was like coming up to Christmas, I think, or in the fall. And then the next in next January, we were, he was like, we're making reality. And then we're going on tour. So he was like, he'd, he'd, figured, he'd planned it. He, he was like, we're doing the reality tour. I'm going to get this record done and out before that happens. So he had it, he had it all planned out. So the, there, was a, there, was a, there was an efficiency to that record in the sense that it wasn't kind of like, hmm, should I make a record or is this good? It was kind of like, we're making a record, we're going on tour, we got to get this finished, <laughs> you know, um, which is sometimes a nice, nice thing to bring to a project, you know. Yes, it, well, there's, there's definitely good to have a, a, a sort of a, a deadline. Also, 
Yeah. And what what was it like working with Tony Visconti on that during that sort of period? Because obviously there's this kind of, you know, Tony Visconti's got this amazing history of people like Mark Boland and then sort of, you know, this sort of famous times with David Bowie and then not famous with David and then sort of coming back again. But he's got this amazing CV and, and sort of quality. What, what was your experience like seeing people like that up close? Again, it was, it was like kind of, is this happening? I'm in a small room with David Bowie and Tony Visconti and me, and they're like, what do you think? And I'm like, what do I think? You know, you know, you guys made these records that I had on cassette, like lying in my bed as a teenager, you know, like we talked about. And now you want to know what I think, you know, but I'd be like, well, I think I should do this. And I go out and I do something. And Tony was great. Tony was great. He's a he's a real gentleman. He has a great um, bond with David. Uh, you know, it's very much you feel like you're in the room with two English gentlemen. You know, and um, they love to talk about their about movies and art and you know, a lot of it's like blah 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 blah, telling jokes and telling stories and talking about things they feel passionate about. And then it's kind of like. What was that thing you were going to do, Jerry? And I'm like, oh, I don't know. I'll go ahead and do it and play. And they'd be like, that was great. Come on in. And I'd be like, can I do it again? They'd be like, no. And I'd come in and then they'd be like, what's for lunch? I'd be like, I'll have a sandwich. <laughs> you know? So it was, you know, it was, it was, they were great. I mean, I cherish those days. It was so nice to get asked to come in. And um, they were, they were always interested in what you had to say and uh, interested in, you know, they didn't give you, what I realized is that they didn't give you, they weren't going to sit there and punch you in. Can I do that again? Sure. It was kind of like, no. Can you do it again? No. So I had I learned I had to work pretty fast. Yes. It's kind of interesting. No. I just remember now, because I was doing an interview with this guy called Keith Christmas. And um, I think he knew David from the very early days. And he said, you know, occasionally David, you know, there was one occasion when David said, look, could you just come down and could jam a bit and play some guitar? I think he was almost going to, yeah, from Keith Christmas, he said that he'd, um, he was going to potentially take over the Mick Ronson part. So he flew him over to New York and it was quite clearly he was not going to be the next Mick Ronson. But then a few years later, he got sort of asked to do a bit of a, just come over one evening and do some jam sessions. And David was like, yeah. you know, could you, have you got anything that I could sort of basically borrow? And, um, and he said, yeah, it was all right. It was quite a nice experience. So I guess with artists, everyone's looking for some sort of inspiration, really, aren't they? Well, yeah, I mean, I, hopefully you're being asked there because they, people like what you do, you have your creative your instincts and that, you know, the best, look, the best place to be is where people kind of have an inkling of, of the kind of musician that you are and they want you there for that reason. And they let you be creative. I mean, that's, that's where it gets, that's the, that's where it gets really fun and yes. it's, satisfying if i could imagine so just i mean i'm sort of curious because there was the sort of you know because i came to see the the reality tour at wembley arena which was like you know it was just like wow that's fantastic because i'd seen you know david at you know serious moonlight and i even saw him at live aid and at you know the berlin sort of in 87 and various other i think that was it really but there was a you know it was fantastic so seeing reality you know the band everything seemed really amazing and then you know he has the heart problem and it all finishes during that period did you ever get any kind of email or message from anybody or did it was it just that was it kind of gigs over yeah it was a, it was a little strange at the end you know i mean um obviously i was on stage with him when that happened and um 
it was so it was so weird. You know, I just recently saw some footage, like B roll stuff of of rehearsals for that tour, which would have happened that you know June of two thousand three, I guess, and uh, and then some stuff of us on the road. And he's so full of beans. I mean, you know, he's hamming it up. He's he's giving great shows. He's like, we finished. You know, when we finished in those shows and um, uh, coming up to rea- the reality tour, he was like, "Let's keep doing this." He was like, "We're going to make a record a year. We're going to we're going to tour. We're going to do it in sections and all of this kind of stuff." You know, um, but I guess you you can't cheat these things. These things come along. He blocked artery and he had a lot of pain and he had a real thing. So it was a shame that it that it that it went that way. You know, there was no preamble to it though i think it, it took everybody by surprise um and that was the really shocking thing and then we were kind of like on hold we were in the hotel and it was it was like groundhog day you know you wake up and you wait to get the email from the tour manager are we are we moving today are we playing that show and be like no we're staying here another day okay and yes. i think we hamburg the bells of the cathedral they they rang on the hours like dong it's very dramatic sometimes around david things were like that it's like the whole universe was playing along so the bells were ringing and we were waiting for the news and you know but the poor man was in pain you know it's terrible yes well it was kind of weird weird, because i know a few years before then bizarrely i'd gone see meatloaf and i think david and meatloaf are the same age and this was at um i think it was at wembley as well one of those and um he just after he didn't look good and after you know and he was sort of like perhaps he's just acting and then suddenly he sort of collapses and actually he has also the same thing as what David had, which, you know, which was a blocked artery and he had the sort of treatment. But I think he seemed to sort of bounce up and was back touring quite quickly, whereas David seemed to be a bit more kind of serious in the sense that he just disappears, which is the first time in my life that it was just like, David's not there with his... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was, yeah, that was like the, the fell into darkness, you know. It was very Lord of the Rings, you know. Um, yes. We were all like thinking, well... You know, maybe next year then he'll do something and you'd hear one, you'd hear little things, you know, and I saw him a couple of times, um, but it never came, you know, it never came until much later. Yes. So then did you get the phone call or the, an email saying, you know, come, come, come to this studio, yeah. keep quiet? Yeah I, got a, yeah, I got an email, Stum, I think was the title of the email. And it was like, do you want to come and work on some demos? Um, a week in the city and and keep stum. I was like, you know, you, you know, I do. Yeah, absolutely. This is the best news ever. And I'll keep stum, you know, so um, I can be pretty stum. Very, uh, yes. And so we, so then I'm down in a tiny little rehearsal room with Tony Visconti and Sterling Campbell, uh, David, myself and David, you know, uh, and David had a book, you know, he had his book bag and he had a little demo machine and his keyboard and a guitar and he was like can i play another one <laughs> like yes <laughs> and, and do so you and do you and do you ever get a chance at that, those times to have a kind of a casual chat which isn't you know just like how's it been you know it's been you know 10 years i didn't want to i didn't really want to go there you know no no I didn't question it um i'm you know so we, we you know, and we hung out but we ha- we hung out as a group you know we go for coffee or whatever you know so it wasn't like, it didn't seem appropriate to kind of go, so David, why is it taking you so fucking long? To come to <laughs> um, 
we were just kind of like, I was just like, great, he's here. And then, you know, and then, and then nothing for, for almost, you know, five months. And then we're going in to make the record. It was like amazing. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, I, I think at that point he was just kind of like, he didn't want to, he didn't want to have expectation. He didn't want people over his shoulder. He just wanted to kind of like, uh, you know, work at his own pace and be his own best critic, you know, I think I think that's why it took time, you know, because time is time is your best friend when when you're trying to uh, produce something yourself, for sure. Yeah, yeah. and and the material on it because you've got obviously where are they now? Love is lost. The stars are out tonight. You know, the next day. I mean, they, it, you must have thought, God, the song. These are great songs. You know, oh, there's nothing song. like I'll just do it because frankly, I'm not going to say no. But you know, you must have felt really like, this is really powerful stuff. Did you? Did yeah, you? Great. Sort of, get quite a thrill being there doing that again yeah yeah for sure and we were working at crack pace i mean we had you had us down there for like five days uh but they were you know short days i mean they, you know there were 10 to 6 or something like that whatever it was um uh, we were doing like four or five songs a day going through these ideas and trying to like jot down the ideas and he didn't want he didn't want any recording he didn't want anything like that we we persuaded him sterling and i persuaded tony and david to bring in a little rig on the last day because we were like look you know we're getting really good stuff here and good ideas but you know nobody's going to remember it you, we should just kind of capture this so that's what we did on the last day instead of like doing another pile of songs we we tried to remember what we did over the last four days and we recorded all that. And that's what became the next day. Um, yes. Amazing. Did and you... it was really handy to have those recordings because I made a little, then I made charts for the, for the record. Um, and I had those versions and at least I could do the sections. And so that, cause when we made the record, it also happened pretty quickly. You know, he, he likes to work quickly. So you know, it, it was only fair that the musicians would have something that we could we could all be on the same page, you know, and say, these eight bars, can we do that? You want to do that twice? Okay. <laughs> you know, line two, twice, you know, whatever it was. You know. Yes. Did you ever sort but of David, feel... David did you did all that. He, he was like, I don't want... He would, he would never call anything a verse. He would never call anything a chorus. He would never call anything a bridge. He hated those terms. He'd be like, the other bit. Let's play the other bit. Or the squiggly bit or whatever. You know, he would have all these little... Name, nicknames for things so. yes absolutely and did you ever sort of hope that there would, was going to be like oh this could be another album coming later or even some live dates or was it just never sort of something that was ever mentioned yeah I, I'm not sure that it was really mentioned and again it was kind of like you know don't rock you know kind of don't rock the boat it's it's here the boat's here don't don't rock it too much you know um and, you know, look, at that point, I know David uh, a little bit, and he, he, he will often ask your opinion, but it's not because he doesn't know what to do, but he's interested in what you have to say. But he also know he may already know what he's going to do, or he certainly, he's going to decide himself what he's going to do. So, you know, I wasn't going to go up, hey, Dave, we should go on tour with these hot numbers, you know, it's yes. kind of like, that's not that's not it's not appropriate and it's not going to happen you know and it's just going to be embarrassing <laughs> so 
Um, so, but you know, there was a hope that there would be another record. There was a hope that maybe we might, you know, play them live. We yeah. certainly, we almost played them live recording them. Um, that was the approach, you know, so. And did you, and from those experiences, did you sort of feel looking at David that he physically and mentally and spiritually even seemed like him, his old self or did it was there did you feel like there was any change in him as a person i don't know i was i was amazed and relieved that he seemed like his his the self that we had left off in 2004 you know maybe a little older a little wiser but he was singing great and he was he had that energy and he was slim and fit and uh you know bright a bright light you know yes there must have been a thrilling moment when you knew the single was coming out there'd been no word and i do remember waking up and suddenly think oh there's an there's a recording that must be an old one I think no he's come back and and like i said you know he's been in my life since you know i saw him on top of pops all those decades ago and thought my god this is this is weird you know because he's disappeared then he's come back again it's such a strange feeling but it's like kind of the, the whole buzz did you just sit there thinking the world must be sort of waking up to this kind of revelation it's on the news you know everything yeah. it must have felt quite it's never going to happen again in anyone's life is it amazing it was amazing and you know and the beautiful thing was i i discovered the way everybody else discovered you know i didn't have any preamble to that um, I, I knew the record was done, at least I thought it was done. Um, and I'd heard some mixes along the way, but it wasn't like I was invited down to a big um, listening party or anything like that. Yes. And then uh, the single came out on, on, on that day, right? It was, was it January? Was it? I can't remember now. It was a winter's day, wasn't it? Yes. And, and, then, like... and then I found out about it as well. And then I, I subsequently found out that the album was going to be released and, and, and all of that through um you know dealing with his company and his management because i ended up with some writing credit on that record and so that all had to be suddenly buttoned up before so the guy he said more i think, think david wanted anybody to know because when i was talking with the guy he was like oh i've said too much and i was like don't worry i'm not going to say anything um but he didn't want to you know david wanted he had a totally locked down which was kind of amazing in this time Yes. <clears throat> Fighting in plain sight or something, you know? Yes. Well, it's, uh, it is quite strange, actually. Quite I think he must have gotten a great kick out of it. You know, oh, that's the kind of thing he would, he, he would get a lot of entertainment from, you know, just, just pulling that master stroke of, of, of just dropping a record like that. There's, even his record company didn't know. You know, nobody knew. It was quite strange, wasn't it, really? It was quite, there was one strange thing that happened. Our neighbor, three doors down, with their sons into the fashion world. And suddenly he said, yes, he's just gone to New York to, to see David Bowie. And I was thinking, oh, what, you know? He said, yeah, this, he was working for Louis Vuitton. And he said, yeah, he had to go and see David Bowie and have a meal with him. And I thought, oh, it can't be true. And then I sort of saw him at a party. So I went straight for him. I said, so did you go and see David Bowie? And he, you know, he clearly wasn't gonna he wasn't lying and then he said one thing which made me laugh he said yeah I was there at the table and then I got my book out and then this woman this assistant I think her name's Coco she just literally jumped across the table and nearly hit me <laughs> it was like oh right you're definitely not lying are you it was it sounds like it was quite the genuine thing but he had a some sort of Louis that sounds Vuitton. real 
<laughs> it, was like, it was like, oh, right, yeah, there, there's too many little details for you to have made that whole story up. And, you know, and then I saw David had advertised for Louis Vuitton. So it's like, yeah, you did. You had a meal with him and, and Coco nearly punched you. He said, yeah, yeah. I was just, you know, anyway, so famous Coco. But then the following year, <laughs> the, following... the whole experience right there. <laughs> <laughs> was she like a Rottweiler? Coco was fierce, yeah. Oh, yeah, you wouldn't get on the wrong side of Coco, my God. So that story sounds quite... We had a lot of... We'd go to dinner and stuff. She's she's wonderful. But I never wanted to get on the wrong side of her. Oh, my God. (laughs) She was his fierce protector. Yes. Then when the following year, your diary's looking good. You worked with Suzanne on the tales from the the realm of the Queen. this is one yeah this is this seems like is this the first time that you really collaborate with Suzanne as a sort of a co-writer yeah 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 it was kind of on the back of so I almost produced uh, Beauty and Crime um I had my name in the hat and I didn't get picked and that's fair enough that's the way the music business goes and um and you know like I say we remained friends and I I played guitar on the record and then when that one when the next one came up um, you know, I made it clear that I, I would be interested in producing it. There didn't seem like a strong contender there. And I, I felt like I, I'd been on the road a lot with Suzanne and I knew she had these little songs, but I also knew that she needed, at that point in her career, she needed somebody to help organize it and put it together. And I see this a lot with artists. People get busy with their lives and they're actually very creative people, but they they can't get the pieces together by themselves because there's too many people tugging at them, you know. So I set up a writing regime with her. I was like, let's go down. I'll meet, you know, I was in upstate at the time, but I was like, let's meet every Thursday. Right. Uh, and her manager had an office in, in right, you know, right there in Union Square. And he had a little music room in the back. And I was like, let's go to Michael's, you know, we'll just go in the back. She knew where it was. She felt safe there and everything. And, uh, and we'll make it a writing session. And so she's, you know, we, we, we basically flesh out the songs and um, some were, were genuine co-writes. Sometimes she would, like we did one, Never Wear White. And she was like, I want this kind of Rolling Stones thing. I have this lyric. And I was like, well, what about, what about the, is it the Black Crows or no, no, not the Black Crows, Black something, White Stripes. Kind of, anyway, I, I was like, well, what about this? And I, I just come up with a little riff um, myself. And I was like, this is a cool riff. And I was like, what about this? And she started singing and that song came together really quickly. Um, yes, that's, that's kind of one of the standout songs on the album, isn't it? Because I've seen you perform it live, especially solo with the two of you. And it is, yeah, uh, yeah. It is one of yeah, those. It really that does. was a very clean kind of like, she had the lyric. And I, I was like, she's like, I need something, uh, you know, rocking, but up-tempo. And I was like, what about this? And she, you know, and she liked it. And she just started singing. Then we wrote the bridge. We were on the road. We wrote the bridge. And, you know, and then we were like, do you want to play it? And we played it live. We, we played it live in Seattle at a gig. Just, you know, it was one of the encores. We just like, she's like, you want to do the new song? I was like, the new song? <laughs> and we played it. And uh, people loved it. And um, so... That that was a nice little. Sometimes you need those kind of songs to help the record get along. And people start getting excited, like, okay, yeah, I can see it now, you know. And um, and then she had some songs almost finished, but they needed like a little bridge or something like that, whatever. So 
I kind of like helped her. We did the writing sessions and then uh, I did a try. I think I did a couple of tracks, same kind of thing. I was like, let me do a track. And we did Never Wear White. And I got my guys, the guys I liked, come and play on it. And then they loved it. And then we we're like, okay, we're going to make the record. So I did a budget and put on my producer hat and did yeah. a record. Yeah. Because this is with her own label this time, isn't it? So this is going to be a bit of a different. Um, yeah, it was. It was her. It was less people involved. It was her manager and herself. You know, so that was the creative. But again, I mean, it's it's kind of amazing because the the band that you you know some of the musicians. I mean, quite a few of them are from the David Bowie session as well, wasn't there? For the year before, which was quite handy, I suppose. Did you just think? Yeah, oh, I've got I've got a good drummer. Oh, and a bass player as well. <laughs> yeah, well, I you know she knew that I. She'd seen me play with David and she loved the show. Um, but there was an interesting connection, you know, um, the drummer, um, Zach Alfred, who plays, you know, has played with David. It's Ster Sterling Campbell did all the reality stuff. Yeah. But Zach was another drummer. They, Zach and Sterling are friends and they, they would, you know, um, hand off gigs to each other or whatever. Um, so Zach ended up playing a lot of the next day. Um, Suzanne grew up in New York City, a couple of blocks from where Zach grew up and knew his brother. And remember Zach coming over like to a birthday party, like when Zach was like tiny. So she was, you know, charmed by this idea that she knew brother and she knew a young Zach. And I was like, well, we should get Zach to come and play on a song. And she was like, that'd be amazing. So I, I thought it was nice to just bring those things together, you know, Yes, absolutely. And at this stage, because you and Suzanne now, um, you're, you're performing a lot together. I mean, you're obviously yeah. able to sort of not only sort of help write and produce the material, but you also like, does she prefer it? I mean, and I would imagine the economics of this and just logistics is quite handy. Say, I don't really want to go out as a solo artist, but it'd be really handy if you come along to sort of give it a bit more kind of soundscape, sonic quality, and also some emotional and spiritual support this is yeah yeah i think so i think it's like you know it 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 expands the show she had been doing a similar thing with uh with her bass player mike so they were used to that format the duo format um and then we did shows and people really liked it it gives me a lot of room uh it's 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 a very it's a difficult enough gig and i and i don't say that um for me I, it, because it's very exposed um, I'm not, yes. <laughs> you know, I'm not, I, but it's just, you know, if I miss a note, even if I miss a note or a finger, it's, it's like super exposed. So that's where like the classical guitar stuff comes in where I, I, I really work on, I'm always changing the fingers, just things to make it, it the sound more continuous and whatever. But anyway, it's a good gig for me and, and it's, a, it's a challenge yes. um, and it's very flexible lineup. Right. So we, we play little clubs and we play small theaters, but we open for Queen up in Helsinki. You know, it's just the two of us out there making a racket. And it's really fun, you know, she likes it. Yeah. So when you did, because kind of very recently, you did this quite kind of prestigious kind of event, which was at the an evening of New York Songs and Stories at the Cafe Carlisle, which obviously is quite an expensive gig, isn't it? So to yeah. get that together, and you, you, this is the two of you, does that put a bit of extra pressure or are you just at that stage where you, you know, that doesn't have too much effect on you, you sort of thinking, God, we're really going to have to pull this off. We're going to have to be, because yeah. they've spent well, a lot. 
it's one of those things where, you know, you approach it as a, a little bit of like a new project, like how, how are we going to do it, do something special. So it's extra work for me, for sure. And, and you got to put your thinking cap on. So as it happens, those gigs, we, we did it with a quartet. Um, we, we could have done it as a duo, but we wanted to do something different. And the, that particular room, it's kind of like a piano a piano and singer kind of room, you know, there's a giant grand piano in the middle. It kind of takes up all the stage and stuff. So I we played it a, a couple of years previous and we tried, we used some drums and stuff, but I didn't feel like that was right for the room. And I was like, why don't we do like guitar, piano and upright bass? And that would be the right kind of intimate setting for, for this room and uh and then we could do arrangements of you know she wanted she knew that she wanted to do new york songs so we had a list of songs and then i picked the players um based around what, what we wanted to sound like and um and then kind of worked on the arrangements and uh a lot of it i did but you know i had the piano player come up with an arrangement of anniversary because i thought that would be a nice moment to have the you know, piano and i think i do some ambiences and stuff but it's essentially that. And so, yeah, we really uh, tailored the show to that room. Um, yes. I mean, it's, it's a fantastic album. And uh, yeah, just a well, great idea. Ludlow Street's on that record, right? It is. Yeah. And I know that has a huge amount of kind of emotion for her because it was related a lot to her period yeah, in New York and her brother as well. So obviously, you know, and that does have a sort of a, a kind of a, a, sal, a sad charm to the whole kind of um, the track, actually, which is, yeah, it, it kind of works incredibly well. The one thing I've always noticed with Suzanne Vega is that she's managed to sort of always seem really calm you know, as a person throughout this whole life of, you know, because a lot of those artists that, you know, I mentioned in the 80s, you know, they, you know, things kind of get messy, but with her, she never seems to ever get flustered or doesn't seem yeah. like it's, she's ever lost it, you know, and like I, I mentioned, you know, having, you know, those first couple of albums, especially the first one, which is kind of probably quite kind of daunting, really, because, you know, having that kind of pressure and then sort of headlining Glastonbury, a festival with 60,000 people and having yeah. a death threat as well, must you know, but not seemingly, you know, and having the record label, having lots of different musicians. So mm. a, as a person, does she sort of, is she just very grounded? Yeah, I think she is. I think she is. I think, you know, it's that kind of, she grew up in New York. She grew up in a poor neighborhood in New York. And, uh, you know, you, you kind of had to be able to navigate a lot on your, just to walk home from school. You know, I mean, um, so, you know, she, she grew up in that. And then she worked really hard, you know, down in that folk clubs to try and get, get some success or get a foot on the on the ladder rung on the ladder whatever it's supposed to be called <laughs> yes. and then get and stuff and then you know um you know she 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 made her first record and and then the, with the success that came after it you know i think you know she's up for it she she really likes the you know being as an artist and being a singer songwriter so that she's driven to be that um but she's you know and she's seen i mean we sit down, you know, uh, after a gig, you start telling stories, we're on the bus and you start telling stories and she'll come out with these stories and you go, 
that happened. You know, I was like crazy. Like that, like the tour bus blew up. Like the guy went back to it and there was an extra and everybody's clothes and guitars got blown up. And then we got stuff out of the, you know, guitar center and we played the show and, and you, and it's just kind of like, yeah, that happened. And they just kept going, you know, she kept going, keeps going. So it's, it's almost like you can't phase her because she's seen it all happen for real. You know, people keel over, you know, people, you know, babies are born, you know, um, you know, buses blow up, uh, you know, you play huge shows, small shows, you have success, you have, you know, not success, you know, you see it all. So, yes. you know, that's kind of awesome. You know, you were talking earlier about, you know, you know, working with, working with artists. I mean, one of the great things is, you know, working with such, such great talent and then, and, and not only just as artists, but, but, you know, they're the life lessons that come, you know, the people who've been through that, you know, they're very cool people. Yes, you know, absolutely. Cool I mean, I, I could imagine. So with, um, in the last year, I mean, obviously we've all had the horrendous lockdown. I mean, have you managed to sort of keep yourself motivated and, sort of positive because obviously you've had some dates with Suzanne which must have felt like a huge relief but then well that was yeah that was dipping the toe back in the water yeah but before after in between yeah it's been a time you know the good there's there's good and bad uh, but the good part of it was it was kind of a relief to get off that hamster wheel of just being on the road all the time and moving to the next project it's really that that kind of stuff is really good for your chops, you know, and your uh, process or whatever, you know, and being able to manage these big projects and keep everything rolling and get everybody's work done. But it was almost a huge sigh of relief to just kind of come home and uh, yeah. meet my family again. And uh, <laughs> and then, you know, so but that went pretty well. They, I'm still still um, still with the same family. <laughs> and uh, and then you know i fixed all my gear that was broken now it's, that's kind of that, that stuff really needed an overhaul and um i you know i i changed some things i bought i changed some guitars i i was able to think and and active act on those thoughts you know and so it's been a fertile time for me uh in terms of like um you know me kind of like tending to the things that that uh like the tools of my trade and my own skill set and i mean early on i was like i got i got to get on a routine here so i you know i put myself i would get up in the early in the morning and i would try and practice every day and i would run every day and you know my meditation practice and all those things became really important to me because i was like i otherwise i'm just going to spin out and go crazy yes. And you know enough enough projects came in to kind of like be challenging and 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 keep me busy. I did an um, there's an or this show with an orchestra of of Bowie songs from out of Ireland that's that's in the works and and um, it's taking COVID forever, you know, uh, kind of thing. But that's that was a m massive project and but very rewarding. I uh, produced a record for a new artist Pierce Turner. Uh, well. He's not a new artist. He's been around forever. Uh, Irish American guy. And um, that was really fun. Uh, kind of indie record and um, very mm. creative. Um, played guitar on it and ended up producing it. And, uh, 
so you know, there's been stuff that's that's kept kept me going, and and uh, I did a little, little EP of uh, of some ambient work myself. I did two EPs of it. Yes, uh, that's what I was listening to. Yes, the Viral Time stuff, um, which were all like kind of like live improvs, and then I would just kind of like enhance them a little bit. Um, and it felt relevant to what I was going through. And I thought, well, maybe this could be useful in some way as a re- point of reflection, you know, um, for your whatever you need to do to keep your mental sanity to get us through this, these, these changing times. Um, so that's been the good part. Um, I miss playing. Um, uh, starting to come back. It still feels a little bit broken out there, you know. It doesn't feel like it's not just kind of like okay, yeah. three, two, one, but we're back in the room, um, you know. So, so the gigs are compromised, the venues are compromised, the, the the things we used to do are weirdly compromised. Like you can't shake anybody's hand, you can't see anybody after the show. Um, there's no, you know, sometimes we go out and do a little signing or, you know, have friends come by or whatever. There's none of that, so it's not a social, but. Um, it was challenged to get out there and play again. Um, Do you think? Because um, I did an interview. Was his name Nicky Camp, who used to, he seemed to promote a lot of stuff in New York, and he said he was a little bit kind of feeling like his career might not quite pick up again because he said that the live music scene on his scale, because he you know he was into the rock world of New York, putting on sort of those lots lots of metal bands, I suppose, or heavy bands. He was saying it's yeah. not quite what it. He feels like something's changed. Sort of venues have kind of a few have closed down and stuff like that. Do you sort of feel like yeah. it's going to still take a little bit more time for New York to sort of find its kind of groove again? Yeah, I, I do. I do because you know they're little ecosystems, you know, and they need a certain amount of of this and a little bit of that, and you know, and certainly the the small venues help a lot because they're the things that things spring out of, and that's where the the real music is happening. I mean, not all of it, but you know, when people get off the road and they want to try something, you know, the small venues are the places where that kind of creativity happens. And unfortunately, with small venues, is they're a couple of months away from closing their doors because, you know, it's, the rents are, I mean, it's incredibly expensive to do that kind of a thing in New York. So um, I feel like we might have lost a lot of that, like that stuff for now until it can kind of reemerge. Um, yes. And... And it pro- and it probably will, but it's definitely not a, just a switch that we're going to flick, and it's all going to oh, the lights are going to come back on again. Um, so you know, for some people will go to the wall, and some people will fade away, and some people will come back, and some people will come up new. Um, but I think it's going to take a while, and it's going to take a little bit of um, you know, it's going to take a little bit of patience, I suppose. I mean, I would I'd love to see it come back. But um, it does feel like things have changed. Um, we've all changed. We've yeah. all changed. And you know? do you, and with, with, you know, you've done some live dates with Suzanne and you've still got a few. Are you touring next year with her over Europe and the UK? I mean, the, yeah, the plan is that we start in, in, in February and we're, we're very shortly, I think in February, we're going to be in the UK doing shows um, what we should have been doing in 2020, in May 2020, we'll be doing in in February 2022. Yes. Uh, we hope, you know, um, and, you know, my feeling now is it's, it's on the books, but 
it may hold or may not hold. I don't know. I can't yes. tell. I'm not being pessimistic. It's just kind of like, we don't know, you know. Um, I hope it doesn't. Um, I hope live music doesn't become this rarefied thing where it's kind of like, you know, it's this odd thing. It used to be so much more part of the, you know, it's just like running water or something. You know what I mean? It's it's, it's like live music. Of course, yeah, bands play live and you can go see them. Uh, you like a band, find out where they're playing and you can go see them. And now it's going to be like, well, you can have a Zoom with them or something. I don't know. It's not going to be the same thing. No, no, those 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 things didn't really happen. Did and they? I just fixed all my gear. What am I supposed to do now? You know, <laughs> it's I, working. Have, have you got plans to do any live or not live um, recording in new material with Suzanne at all? Is there any sort of anything in, in the sort of pipeline for there's, that? There's a little bit of talk. Um, I would love it if she did a new record just because it would be nice to just do new work. Um, and I think that could happen maybe next year. Um, if 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 uh, the right series of things happen, but I I know she's got something hatching, um, and that's good. That's good news. Just yes. kind of ease it out, you know. It it would be just amazing. So look, last thing, if if you could have sort of whispered something to your sixteen year old self starting out, and you could have just said, look, yeah, a couple of bullet points. Is there a few things that you might have just wanted to have told them, you know, before, you know, with all the the wisdom and the experience you've had over the decades that um yes that would that would be quite useful you know something that you might say to actually keep doing that how long have we got (laughs) (laughs) uh you know it's kind of like what would you change you know i mean i definitely think i could have done a lot of things better um but you know everything leads you to where it would be um It'd probably be like, don't stay too long at the party, you know, um, meaning, so meaning that uh, there's a tendency sometimes, especially when we're younger, I certainly did it where you're kind of loyal to a certain thing for too long <laughs> and, it, and, and you miss like a growth opportunity um, certainly New York teaches you that because it's just like more like a river running. Um, yes. And that's that's a nice thing, you know, just jump in the river and go with the river. You don't need to hang on to the branch and wonder, wonder what's around the bench. Just, you just go. And so um, I think, you know, but I don't know that that would really resonate <laughs> either. But I, I think, um, you know, I think you can bring that to a lot of aspects in your life. I think you should fully engage and then, but just don't stay too long. Don't be afraid to move on. And uh, I think you can, you know, they, you can fail fast. I, I, this is this new kind of thinking. I, I never knew that expression. I wouldn't have known what it meant. Um, but to fail fast, meaning, you know, you have an idea, try it. Don't just sit around thinking, someday I'm going to do my idea. And it's going to be great. <laughs> because, you know, you're building up the idea and, and then you do it and it's like, oh, it's not so great, you know. <laughs> um, but if you, yeah. you know, but if you do it and, and then you kind of, well, it's not great, but it's not bad either. It just needs a little more, you know. And so you're, you're a little more fluid and you're a little more effectual with that. Um, so that would be, that would be a, a choice nugget. Yes. Well, it's kind of it's kind of interesting because I suppose having sort of a you know, I wouldn't say I studied, but you know, 
yeah, I suppose I sort of with David Bowie, you know, it was that thing of always being excited with that new album. And then suddenly, sometimes he didn't even seem that excited when it came out and had to admit that wasn't great. But then it was like, oh, the next one's coming along. So let's not worry. Let's not dwell on that one. Yeah, in- yeah. He, was, he was a really good example of that. You know, um, he's not one that stayed at the party too long. Yeah. And, and, uh, he didn't have to face him, you know. Um, he was uh, somebody, I read something he some director, he, I don't know, got some bad reviews, something David was in, some, uh, that's not coming to me, but, you know, the director was kind of crying, sobbing, you know, and David was like, look, if you want to be in this business, you've got to have rhino skin, you know, and it's kind of like, yeah, he's right. You know, if you you got to protect your art, you need the rhino skin around it, and and maybe, maybe it wasn't your greatest album, but at least you made the yeah, and, and I think it was Brian Eno who said when he was working in that 70s period, well, it does less experiment, no one's going to die, you know, so let's just do it and then see what happens. Because obviously when he brought out the, the low album and then put side two on, I would imagine at the time people went, oh my God, I've... I, I, I've suddenly lost my appetite. I think I think this is going to be the worst disaster. But now, critically, everyone loves the Low album when they say, what's your favourite Bowie album? But, you know, I remember Charles Shaw Murray from the NME wrote that scathing review, and he's like, yes, I wished I hadn't read that, had written that review. But at the time, you know, it just seemed like, what was this? You know, we don't want this record. We want something else. But, yeah, you know, you just have to do it, and then don't worry, no one's going to die, hopefully. Well, yeah, I mean, you push everything, right? You push everything, you push yourself and, and uh, you'll never know, you know. So it's it takes us that kind of bravery sometimes to, to, to move on and do the next thing. You know? Yes, I think, I think what you said there, get up, run and meditate. I think that's the, that's the key, isn't it? Running <laughs> always, always shakes off everything. I think you change your mental state so much when you run, so... Yeah, yeah, and you, it's connect, no and you connect with your breath, and you just then forget what you were thinking when you woke up, and just thought, God, I'm just shouting. Yeah, you woke up an appetite, and you feel better, and and you you kind of like you know you got and the brain. I, I like to get going in the morning before my brain starts chattering away about how I can't do it, or I shouldn't do it, or I don't have time, or you know it's too cold, or it's too dark. It's drizzling. <laughs> don't worry, just run. And, I love- yeah, and then because I, I do it now on, I, as a thing on the road and, and you know sometimes on the road you, you'll hit the trail and it's like this is perfect and other times you're running on the side of the road and it's really horrible but you know you, you kind of got to you kind of got to face it get out there you know you, yeah you can't you, yeah you can't you can't phone in you you have to get out there and get your breath going you have to get your rhythm going and then you just you just feel then, good. like you say you can bring it to all the other things you need to do it's not like it's not like you get back from your run and everything's going to be great it's just going to be like you're going to have a different attitude towards towards it you know yeah it's good now running's everything really i love it so there you go oh, good man. this is yeah i know this is what happens when you get a bit older you get you know we i don't know if you come across it but there's something called park run in in uk but now it's national they you know nine o'clock on a saturday morning there's a 5k run and mm. um and i think it's 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 just taken off so much that um everybody mm. just turns up and you think nine o'clock on a Monday, on a saturday morning no one's going to turn up and then you know yeah. 500 people That's turn great. up you yeah know. and that's a perfect run for me like 5k something like that you know like i i don't i don't i i say i run but i, I gotta qualify that i run three to five miles you know 
um, often three, which is about 5K, I think. Um, and that's, but it's enough. It's enough that I, it doesn't take up too much time. And so I can get it done and not feel like I don't have time because that's a, that's a, that's a run killer right there. It's like, oh, I don't have time. I'll do well, it later. Well, 5K, you know, you know at, at an easy pace, you know, it's done in half an hour. So yeah. it's kind of, it's, it's in the bag, isn't it? You know, and- um, well, 5K is my, is my go-to yeah. one. I, I, you know, I do enter events, you know, sometimes to do 10K because it's just like quite interesting. But for just mm. here on a daily basis, I'll just do 5K. I'll go around the, the loop twice. Yeah. I think that's it. 5K, half yeah. an hour, do a bit of stretching. Yeah. And, um, I had a few uh, where I was on the road. And, and so I, I have a little more, maybe I have a little more time. I definitely have more personal time. And I, I found I was going a little further. Um, partly out of just picking a, 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 a pin on Google Maps, looking like here's an interesting place to get to. But, you know, it was it was like I was realizing, oh, I'm, I think I'm hitting 10K here, you know. Um, but it was it was good. It was it pushed me a little more for sure. I felt it. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's lovely to do to just do it. But knowing that you can if you want to. But also the thing with 5K, just just on that point. It's it's further enough that you feel it, but at the same time, and you can fit it in because you you know you think I can spend half an hour faffing away, so I've got half an hour oh, to do right. that run, and also yeah. on the long term effect, it's not going to damage too much of your body, your knees, your hips, your ankles, because you know I had a few friends who used to sort of train for the marathon. You thought I'm not sure why because it's 26 miles, mm -hmm. and it's going to the training is going to be boring as hell and then you're going to really damage yourself and and you're not going to enjoy it so 5k you know you, you, you know it's perfect it's absolutely perfect you need the ice bath what's with the ice you know ice bath jesus no. i'm just i'm just keen on very nice running shoes i think that's the thing give yourself a six every six months get some nice running shoes it's always a lovely thing it's a bit like a guitar isn't it you open the box is that smell you think God, <laughs> and um you think well so much pleasure in a box of training shoes. There you go. That's my theory. Yeah, <laughs> new, new carrots. They're the new carrots. They are the new. Yeah, I know. It's great. Anyway, look. Thank you ever so much for this. This has been amazing. And um, best great. of luck for the future. And hopefully, we'll catch you next year when you're in the UK. I know you've got quite yeah. a few dates. And hopefully, they'll be adding more dates. Well, again. yeah. And if you see a, um, a Suzanne date or whatever near you, definitely. Let me know and, and I'll hook you up with some tickets. Oh, that, that would be amazing. Well, look, thank you and all the best. And um, if you want, I can always send you the link and you can always use it on, oh, please do. on your website. There you go. Yeah, That's great. Okay, look, thanks a lot and have a great evening or day. All right. Cheers, man. See you later. Bye. Bye. And that, dear listener, is the end of the interview. Thank you if you're still listening. Well done. And a massive thank you to Jerry for giving me the time for that. Um, this has been The C86 Show. I'm David East. So if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. And um, yes, keep it positive and nice. Otherwise, you know, why, why did you bother? And also, I've been doing interviews like that and mostly about the 80s indie scene, as well as David Bowie, uh, for a few years. So you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, just do C86 Show. It's all there and much, much more. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.